is the tomb empty? And how you answer that question will define everything else in your life and beyond. So what I want to do today is I want to go where Paul takes us. Now, if this is your first time with us, maybe help to know we've been studying a letter that shows up in the New Testament called Corinthians. 1 Corinthians specifically. And the man that wrote that is the Apostle Paul. Once was against Jesus. Was set out to persecute anybody that held up the name of Jesus. And yet through a very personal and intimate encounter with Jesus who was alive, he turns his life 180 degrees around. And the one that persecuted the church, that persecuted the Christians, that sought to imprison, torture, and execute them, lays down his life for this message that there's an empty tomb. And so we're going to go where he takes us today, and that is in the book of, the letter of, 1 Corinthians. If you have that in your Bibles, or you want to go to westernhills.church, I encourage you to do that. And we're going to be in chapter 15. And I want to talk to you today, we're going to go back to basics, because it's easy to understand what all the fuss is about when we get to Easter. And what I want to talk to you today is what Paul talks to us about, and it's this idea of what is the gospel? What, what is the gospel, and what do we do with it? And so what I want to tell you today is what we're going to discover inside these verses in chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles open, there is a lot in this chapter, and I'm going to highlight three specific points of it. So you'll be able to follow along, but I'm going to encourage you on your own time, sometime this week, to go back and spend some time in this chapter. You will not be disappointed in that time. So as we deal with what is the gospel, chapter, chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you. As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one point, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Notice what He says, as of First importance, more important than anything else. And so what he has given us is the gospel. Let me talk to you about what the gospel is and what it's not. Let me tell you what it's not first. The gospel is not the Ten Commandments. The gospel is not simply the entirety of the Bible. The gospel is not how many good things do you do to earn God's favor. The gospel is not your church attendance. The gospel is not you avoiding a certain set of sins. The gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It comes from a Greek word, gelion, which was a messenger. And it was always had this political military victory idea with it that somebody would go ahead 
once the battle had been won, once the war was over and the land was conquered, somebody would ride ahead and announce and pronounce that a new king has arrived. And there's good news. And so in our case, as we look at this gospel, it's going to bring up two questions. Why is it news and why is it good? And what Paul is going to tell us is he's going to define the gospel for us and then he's going to show us in chapter 15 why it's both news and why it's good. So look back with me in the verses we just read. Of first importance, verse 3, more important than anything else, what I received, and here's, here's the gospel. This, if I want you to underline, I want you to highlight, I want you to circle this verse, whatever it is in your app or in your paper Bible. Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. There's the gospel. If, if you need a concise definition of the gospel, that's what it is. And you may have come today wondering, you've heard the word because we throw it around in church a whole lot, and you've heard it maybe from your childhood, or you remember a vacation Bible school that you went to. That is what the gospel is. The entire Christian faith, the gospel message is not based on the Bible. It's not based on the Old Testament. It is based on a single event. The gospel is based on a single event in history. The crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the event in time, in a certain place, that is the gospel message. And so now, I want us to wrestle with, why is it news and why is it good? And so, the, what I would have you know is this. The first thing. The gospel is about what God has done. The gospel is about what God has done. And I'm going to talk to you specifically about the two words that have been highlighted in that statement. The first is this. What God has done. Has the gospel has already happened. That's why it's news. Because it has already occurred. It is something that we can look back on and be confident in and see. Once again, it's not based on Scripture. Now, the Bible tells us about the gospel. But understand that there's a moment that Paul's trying to get us to see. That when we stood at the tomb and that seal is broken like the guard just testified to and the stone begins to roll away, nobody showed up for it. Now, we may have all kinds of sunrise services this day. There is one time in history where nobody in the entire world showed up for a sunrise service. It's on the very first Easter. Because nobody expected Easter to happen. I love what Andy Stanley says here. Nobody expected no body in the tomb. That's good. I wish I had written that. 
Nobody expected it, but what happens in our faith is that we believe that in a moment in history, there was a real tomb in a real place, and Jesus lay dead in the tomb. Not comatose, not in some kind of stasis. His body was lifeless and dead, and then through the unbelievable power of what God can do, he comes back to life. God has done this. And Paul's actually going to say in this chapter when you read it, he's going to say, if this didn't happen, if, if the tomb is not empty, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, then we are to be pitied among all of the earth. Anybody that buys into this, Paul says, if the tomb isn't empty, then everything else collapses around it, and we're fools for believing it. But if it did, then it changes everything. And so the first thing you need to understand about the gospel is the reason it's news is because it's about something God did. He has done, he has stepped into history and done something decisive. That's why you call it news. If you ever know somebody, have you heard the news? Whenever you say that phrase, wherever you get your news from, and you're telling somebody else, have you heard the news, you're always talking about something that did happen. Here's what happened. Here's the event. Here's the the details. Here's the story about what has happened. And so if you wonder where God's positioned in your life, just know that he's already acted on your behalf. Second part, God has done this. God is the one that set all of this in motion. I'll hear a phrase as a minister. Let me tell you about when I found God. Now, I'm not trying to take anybody, anything away from anybody that says that. But what you need to understand, the gospel message is that it's not that you found God. It's that God in His grace, who has been seeking you, found you in the moment of your sin. God has made all the moves towards you. God is the one that enacted this act of grace, this gospel message, this good news. And he moved your direction, not by your own will, not by your own power, not by your own cleverness. Did you figure out how to get to God? God set it all in motion because of what he has done. God moved your direction. And so the story of the gospel is not how do you get to God. It's about how God is passionately in pursuit of you. That's the news that gets announced on that Easter morning to an audience of no one. But Jesus begins to appear. And that's what that second half of that verse we read, he begins to appear to several, to his closest ones, to his followers. If you read the word Cephas in there, that's another name for Peter. Maybe you've heard of him, the apostle that seemed to always be leaping before he thought. And he would jump in to situations, and he becomes a leader in the church and in this movement. The one that denied Jesus on the night he was betrayed becomes a leader, because once again, it's what God has done and the way that he redeems. And then it says, list some others, and it says even the 12, and then as many as 500. And if you notice what Paul does there, he says, he says and many of them most are still alive. What Paul is doing is he's saying, check this out. 
You don't write the story that way if all of your witnesses can't be trusted. If you don't actually have people that you can say, hey, go talk to him. He was standing right there. He'll tell you. Go talk to her. She saw him. He's saying you can have confidence in this. This is what God has done. Then he goes on. So I want you to jump a few verses down. Verse 20. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is right after he said you're going to be foolish if this didn't happen. But you can have confidence. He did raise from the dead. The first fruits, circle that word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And here's the verse that is, I believe is Paul's thesis statement. Here's the one that he wants you to understand before you walk away today. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And there's our word. says you're the first fruits that that when Christ walks out of that tomb on Easter morning one it's the first fruits and see first fruits are always the indicator of the harvest that's to come you you check the first fruits and and how are they coming you can predict what the harvest is going to be like they're they're an indicator they're pointing to something more and so Easter is not simply about what God has done, the fact that we gather today and we can testify that Jesus is alive. Here's the second part of the gospel, the good news is. The gospel is about what God will do. The good news is not just what God has done for us and on our behalf, but the second half of it is about what God will do. The first part is a declaration of what he wants to do for us. And he says, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And what Paul is claiming here is that there is a resurrection for all of those who are coming into Christ, that they will be made alive again. Jesus is just the sign. It's the symbol. He's the indicator of what God wants to do for all of creation and all of those who profess his name. See, if you're in the first century... And still same today, but you've got a struggle. And the struggle is this. How do you overcome the two biggest challenges in your life? Sin and death. How, how do you face those two struggles? And what happens in that Easter morning is that Jesus walks out of the tomb and a dead body alive again. To never die again. And he addressed, he says, I have command over death. And I've got command over your sin as well. Do you notice that part in the middle? Let's go back into that part in the middle where it talks about uh, verse, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And he refers to Adam in the very next verse. Now, Adam, if you remember your Bible story, Adam, he's talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
And so he's taking us all the way back to the very beginning. And if you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they're put, they're God's first creation, put into this perfect paradise place. There, there, is, there is no sin, no frustration. There's no traffic. There's no dropped internet signal. It's perfect. Every challenge, no hunger, no brokenness, no lies, no deception. They are as pure and as whole as anybody has ever been. And you knew we'd mess that up pretty quick, didn't you? They're given one instruction. To not eat from a tree that's referred to as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's forbidden fruit. It's where we get the phrase. It's almost like Adam goes to Eve and says, hey, did you know there's a tree of forbidden fruit? He says, no, I didn't know. I don't know. What do you want to do? You want to try it? Let's try some. They end up daring to try some. They have some. God shows up and says, why did you eat? They begin the blame game. She made me. That game's been going on forever. So as punishment, God gives them their own children. And Scott Seelow gives them M&M's, so there. <laughs> and he says, your days will now be numbered. And you will experience brokenness. And you'll experience toil and difficulty. And you will struggle. And you will experience Death. And so at that moment, sin and death entered into the world, and we were helpless to stop it. And we keep trying to come up with ways to push back against those two things, don't we? We keep trying to find ways to overcome those two struggles. How's that going for you? On the sin side, so many of us have bought into, so many that I've talked to have bought into this idea, if I'll just try harder, if I'll grit my teeth more, if I'll just pray harder, somehow I can work my way out of my sin and have my own sense of rescue. I'll do a self-help program. I'll, I'll improve myself. Now, I'm all for you getting better, but understand Jesus didn't come to be your self-help program. He came to put the old you to death so that you can be raised into new life. And so what Paul is telling us that is of first importance is that when Jesus was on that cross, he bore all of the sin that I've generated and will generate in my life. And so as he experienced that, he carried that burden which I cannot carry. He answered that problem that I cannot answer. He overcame that obstacle that has me stuck in my place. And that's my sin struggle. And as he comes out of that tomb, not only is he talking about physical life, he is talking about the spiritual life that once again, you can be made whole. Now, I don't know if this is your first time in church or not. But if it is, or if it's your thousandth time in church, lean in and listen to this. The good news is that you cannot save yourself. But that Jesus steps in 
in a bold, audacious way and takes your place. The cross that was meant for you and me, he lays down on. The nails that were meant for you and me, he opens his hands wide. The tomb that should have been ours, he's placed in. All should have been ours, yet he stands in our place. There's the good news. So that what God will do, because you see there's a resurrection coming, and so the sin is one problem and death is the other. In my ministry, I'm honored and touched to be invited to be a part of many, many, many funerals. And I'm always acutely aware that every funeral that I preach, there's another preacher in the room. And it goes by the name of death. And what's unfair in this talk or in, this, in that moment seems to be that death has all the evidence. Death has all the weight. I mean, in the moment of the funeral, we often have a casket right up here. And there's flowers And perhaps we're dressed in black, and there's mourning going on. And a funeral home is involved, and they're running around, and we speak in hush and whispered tones. And there's grieving going on. And there's crying. And there's hurt. Death has all the evidence. Death has all the proof on its side. But it's a proof in vain because what comes from the tomb, the empty tomb, is this declaration. Is that as you look at the history of death, it does not have a perfect score. There's a glaring omission. And that one omission, that one time that death didn't have the final word means it does not have the final word. As we talk about the first fruits, there is a resurrection that's coming, and this is what Paul is alluding to in the very last half. And so I want you to look at these verses. Look at these verses at the very, very end. I'm going to pick it up again. Verse 53, this is what I will read if you've been a part of a graveside service that I've been honored to be a part of. You'll hear me read these words because what Paul is going to describe is going to describe the temporariness of our physical bodies, the ones that are subject to the curse, this curse where we deal with brokenness. We get older, we get tired, we get aging, we get aches. Does anybody wake up with aches and pains these days? I can remember very clearly, I could go in my 20s, I could do whatever I want to play the sport as hard as I want to play, and get up the next day, I'd be fine. In my 30s, I'd get up in the next day, and I'd feel a twinge. In my 40s, I would ache for a week. Now, I just ache and I didn't do anything yesterday. 
because the decay is real. And it is no consideration of person. And it just rolls across us. But that's a temporary body. There is a resurrected body that is promised us, just like Jesus had a resurrected body. And isn't it fascinating when you look back into Scripture and he's got Jesus out of the tomb and he's resurrected, there's this weird thing about his body that seems like people don't recognize him at first. There's something different about it. I mean, he's physical, he's real, he's alive, but he's not recognized at first, either by Mary in the garden or by the two guys that are walking towards Emmaus. He's not seen, and then there's this moment where he seems like he can pass through walls and locked doors, and he just shows up in rooms. There's something miraculous and powerful about it because he's in his resurrected body that you and I are promised, and that's what Paul talks about, verse 53. For this perishable body, the one that aches, the one that has pain, the one that suffers cancer, the one that you live with right now, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And what Paul does is he quotes one of their poets. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he did at the end? The sting is sin. Sin and death, your two biggest obstacles. But Jesus walked out of a tomb and Easter power is available and Easter power redefines everything and Easter morning though nobody was there to see it changes everything in the future because what it declares is that death is no more a stranglehold on your life it is not simply that your life is just how long can you keep death at bay Because what the promise is, is that there is something beyond. There is something more. If if death was final, there would be no hope. There would be no reason to do anything other than enjoy it while you have it. Live to your own excess. Live to your own pleasure. Live to your own definition of whatever is good. Pursue all of that. But because... Paul is reminding the Corinthian church and reminding us on Easter Day there is something beyond this. It changes everything. One of my favorite illustrations I shared before is this. Before Columbus sailed, Spain had a motto, non ultra plus. And what it means is there's no more beyond. Spain saw itself as the edge of the world. In fact, it's, it's anecdotally stated or, or believed that it was even on the pillars of Hercules in the waters there, that there's nothing else to sail beyond. There's nothing more than this. And that thought permeated all of life, that there's nothing else to look beyond. There's no way to expand, no way to grow. 
until in 1492, Columbus sails beyond the horizon and discovers a new world. And what that did is that triggered a renaissance and brought about a new way of thinking, a new way of hope. And suddenly what was bounded and bordered became infinite and unlimited. This idea is captured in a statue in Validad, Spain. And this is a, that statue. And if you notice, it's a globe with Columbus sitting at the top of it. But if you zoom in, you'll see that there's a lion off to the edge. And if you see what that lion is doing, is he's tearing up the word non. Non plus ultra to plus ultra more beyond. Because he gave them a whole new way of thinking. On Easter morning, Jesus, the one that is declared the Lion of Judah, ripped the stone away from death. The one that said there's nothing more beyond. And he declared for all eternity, there's more beyond. So much more beyond. That's the gospel message. That's the Easter hope. That's how we believe that Jesus is alive. And the invitation is for you to be also. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that these are not just words that we've shared, but they're truths that permeate right into our heart and to our lives. So, Father, I pray for anyone that's present in this room, watching online, that this would be a message that comes from you and breaks into their heart in a whole new way. And maybe they feel like they're trapped into a tomb of addiction, of a marriage that's broken, of a future that seems unsure, of a terminal illness, of of a sense they've just lost their way, uh, a tomb of hopelessness, Father, whatever it is, would you show them that there's more beyond? Not because we're so good or because we get it right, because you have gone into action and you have initiated the Easter project. And you have brought Jesus out never to die again. And you have addressed our two greatest challenges, our sin and our death. And now you invite us in to this beyond. Father, I pray that today would be the day that if someone has hesitancy at this message, that you would begin to work on them and that they would no longer live in the pre-Easter idea what they live in the glory of what it means when Jesus rose again. Father, help us to be Easter people. Help us to be gospel people and believe and proclaim the good news. Father, I ask all this in the name of the one, your son, that died for my sin, was buried in a borrowed tomb, 
and then rose and walked out as Lord and as King. It's in his name we pray. And together on this Easter we all say, Amen.